Hi all, welcome to Calling All Useful Idiots. Thanks to all the useful idiots who are here right now. Make sure that you share this on social media because we want to get people in here. Bring them into the fold, into the so into the useful idiots fold. Um, while people are getting in, while Aaron's coming in, just want to remind people that they can, of course, tune in every uh, Monday at 10 a.m. Uh, to uh, our Monday morning show, which is our live stream where we talk about the Sunday morning news shows that we watch so that you don't have to. Um, also, uh, and that's at uh, usefulidiots.subs. Oh, no, that's at youtube.com slash usefulidiots. And please consider and please do become um, subscribers to our Substack, that's at usefulidiots.substack.com, where you get great bonus content, extended interviews. We just introduced a new feature called Thursday Throwdowns, where we do some mid midweek media madness recaps. Um, and also, if you uh, are in the New York City tri-state area, I guess the New York tri-state area is what we call it, uh, come on out Tuesday. Uh, that's uh, Tuesday, November 15th. I will be doing a live taping of the Katie Halper Show. Uh, and my special guest will be Miko Pellet, who is an Israeli-American human rights activist who started out a proud Zionist. He's the son of a decorated Israeli war general. Uh, he's the grandson of a signatory of Israeli independence. He's the uncle of a 13-year-old who was tragically killed in a suicide bombing, and he is a major advocate for the uh, one-state solution to the Israeli occupation. And you know what? I think that if we get a good turnout and it goes well, I think we'll be able to force Aaron Mate into doing a uh, Useful Idiots live taping. And you know you'd love to see that. And we have a very exciting guest that we would have for that. So uh, without further ado, make sure you share this. And uh, uh, let's start. Let's just start with our first um, caller. And that would be Brent. Hi. Hi. So um, last week I was speaking, t uh, I called in last week because I was at the Kamala Harris rally and um, I went in and um, surprisingly enough, they were protesting, um, I don't know if it was $100 billion to Ukraine, I don't know if that number is accurate. And what happened was pretty surprising to me. These people who I thought were just regular people they started form they 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 formed a, a line and a formation and they started wa uh, like marching in unison like a like the freaking military to subdue the protesters and um, that was very shocking to me because I thought these plain clothes people were just supporters but they're actually um, part of the campaign I think they're secret service so the camp these campaigns have these uh, people disguised as regular people to stop these protesters. And um, when Kamala Harris was talking about um, abortion, she started doing like all this identity politics BS. She started talking about like the first black Supreme Court justice. And then she even mentioned Thurgood Marshall, which is, which was obvious to me that she was just pandering and cause she didn't have anything of substance to discuss. And she started talking about how the Republicans were to blame for um, Roe v. Wade. And then I started, I shouted out to her and I said, Obama could have codified Roe v. Wade and Biden as well. And then what happened was pretty ridiculous. Um, everyone started looking at me and then the, I saw people started like walking around, uh, forming a formation, like trying to get rid of me. And um, this lady came up to me and said, 
um, I'll let you stay here, but you, you better keep your mouth shut. And I was like, uh, no. And then I started seeing these people come towards me and I was like, okay, I'm going to leave. But, and then while I was leaving, I started telling this person that, um, Obama could have codified Roe v. Wade. He had a super majority. And then she was like, I don't disagree with you, but, um, we're going to have to kick you out. Um, you, you can't uh, speak like that. You just write to her. And I was like, if I write to, if I write to these politicians, they don't do anything. And then, and then, um, when I, they kicked me out, the security guard was shouting at the protesters, um, telling them that they're not welcome at, in the area and that they need to leave. So, um, I just wanted to say that because, um, these rallies, it's a mob, it's a, it's a freaking mob. Like the Trump rallies aren't the only places where there's mobs. These, these politicians are, they all, everyone at these, at these rallies, they all have this mob mentality and it's, um, it's kind of scary to be honest. So, um, I just want to say that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the call in. You're right, the no bar stringer from the protest. <laughs> was right, this, thanks, where was this gathering? Oh. Brent. Oh, we lost Brent. Oh. Come back in. Cause Aaron has some questions. Wants to know where the gathering was. It's true. It's a good question. Was it in DC? I, you know, yeah, I wasn't clear on that. Anyway, all right. But Brent, if, if, you, if you hear this, uh, come back. All right. Rena, go ahead. Uh, good for Brent. Uh, good, good for all the people who are heckling. Um, as a free speech absolutist, I do not approve of the heckler's veto. So I think it's fine that people get thrown out. But uh, so that, you know, the speech can, or whatever it is, can be completed at some point. But it's really good to rattle their cage a little bit and kudos kudos to all the hecklers long may they wave i wish i could join them um two things real quickly because i'm sure you're going to have lots of callers aaron uh nobody needs to teach you or instruct you in any way shape or form about how to remain calm you were surrounded by a swarm of Timothys and Tims yesterday on your own call-in show, <laughs> and uh, you handled yourself impeccably. So uh, I, I think it's, you know, maybe you could uh, do a TED Talk or something about how to remain remain calm. It's, uh, it's definitely in your wheelhouse. <laughs> uh, believe me, I was, much, I was much less calm than you were just listening to it. Um, and then I wanted to say to Katie, uh, that you made a really, uh, good appearance on Russell Brand's new live rumble show, Thanks. uh, talking about the election. And I thought, I thought what you had to say was very perceptive and, uh, some stuff I hadn't even thought about at the time. So I, I thought it was excellent analysis and I'm going to tell everybody I'm going to, Anybody who missed that, I'm going to say it now. Russell Brand wants to be on Useful Idiots, and I yep. want Russell Brand to be on Useful Idiots. So please make that happen. Uh, you're both great. Thanks a bunch. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Katie, you did a Russell Brand show. That, that's awesome. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, all right. And he did say he wants to come on. So we okay, got oh, great. Great. Well, so you, you've had more success than, than me. Uh, so way to go. Brand. We'll make that happen. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. J.G. Sorry if I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. If not, please feel free to correct me. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Well, I decided to sleep in today, so. Uh, but I have nothing else to do this morning. And uh, as a long-time listener, I just wanted to, uh, if you don't mind, of course, wish you great luck tomorrow. I hope it fills up with all kinds of people at the People's Forum. Yeah, are you going to come? Oh, I will be there, Miss Harper. Yeah. In spirit. Oh, in spirit. Well, then, if you can't make it in spirit, you can watch it on youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. I was going to, Miss Helper. Okay, that's all I have to say. Okay, thank you. Uh, Bradford. Bradford, are you there? Yes, hello. Yes, there you go. I, I had to allow my microphone. I apologize. Uh, it's my first time using the call-in, and but I am a Subset subscriber now, and uh, enjoy your guys uh, the show, all the shows on YouTube. So thank you. Um, have a question. Have you guys or did you guys listen to the Sam Harris podcast with Timothy Snyder? So Yale professor and his thoughts on Ukraine are radically different than your guys' take on the Ukraine situation. I was curious if you had any comments on that. I didn't watch it. I've never listened to anything with Sam Harris, so no. And uh, But yes, I'm not um, surprised that Timothy Snyder said stuff that's radically different than the perspective we put out there. Because Timothy Snyder is, you know, is, has been very much on the uh, side of, um, you know, uh, of, I think, the neocons when it comes to Ukraine, and not just in this you know current phase, but for a long time. And so, yes, he and he's very influential. He's you know he sort of puts a progressive liberal face on what I think is a neocon policy, and he's very good at it. And he's got the you know credentials of being a historian, and he teaches at Yale, I think. Yeah. But I think he's totally wrong. And um, I uh, yeah, um, I, I'd love to interview him, but I just don't think he would ever do that. He lived in Ukraine. He, he comes off as as the type of person who who did his stint in the Peace Corps, fell in love with the place, married the local girl, and absolutely will support anything and everything, regardless of what the facts may show. And that's kind of how that interview came off. He he refused to admit that it was a proxy war because he said that Russia was directly involved in the in the campaign therefore it can't be a proxy war it's kind of like parsing words a bit and it, uh -huh. it seemed to uh come off as a lot of it was um trying to put himself in the mind of putin and then later on you know talking about how to how how totalitarians think and 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 what their yes. fatal flaws are going to be and then later on said well we can't put this guy on the couch you know when it came time to maybe think of a different way he was thinking so right of know. course of course. Look, you know, he's the kind of person who, you know, he, he, um, like he wrote a book, like after Trump got elected, it was called, I think, On Tyranny. Yeah. And it was all about how basically we're now living, uh, we're, or like we're close to living in a dictatorship. So here are some steps you can take to uh, protect yourself. And he has all these tips. And like one of the things he said was, 
make eye contact with people. So if you make eye contact, like literally, like one of his tips for like living under Trump was make eye contact. So, which means like, you know, and I wish we were on video now so I could do an impersonation, but it's like, okay, so this is a way to fight Trump by just staring at people in the eye when you see them. But literally that was one of his tips, you know? Hmm. So it's this kind of like uh, vacuous drivel. Yeah. That's like a Jordan that Peterson think- type of advice. Really? Would Jordan Peterson say stuff like that? I mean, I, yeah, he I, says I know- you should clean your room if you want to feel better. You know, these type of like uh, psychological tricks and, and whatnot. It OK, well, I'll say this. It. I'll say this. I'm not a Jordan Peterson, Peterson fan by, by any stretch. Everything I've seen from him, I don't like. But honestly, cleaning your room to me is more substantive than making eye contact to fight authoritarianism. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's like. Yeah, but it was a best-selling book, and he was on MSNBC all the time and Democracy Now. And I just think he's uh, he's really good at putting a progressive liberal face on uh, neocon policies. Well, make sure you keep make eye contact. You are supposed to make eye contact when you cheer someone. Sure, I mean I, I'm not against eye contact, but I'm saying like billing that as like a defense against authoritarianism. I think it's pretty silly. Like. Right. If you're, li- if you're living under Stalin, would it have helped you to make eye contact with other people? Would that have- well, we'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Bradford, thanks for the call. Thank you. All right. Zach. Hey. Hi there. Hey. Uh, oh, my gosh. So happy to be on the call finally. I've been following y'all for a while and trying to figure out this call and app. So I, I'm young, but not super tech savvy. So super, super happy to listen to y'all. Um, been been following you for a while, both of you. Um, Aaron, my, my question, uh, maybe both of you have an answer. I'm just trying to, you know, I, I have been trying to talk to folks a lot about the Ukraine in a, in a you know, in the war in a semi-diplomatic way. But, you know, a lot of folks are like, uh, you know, Putin's so bad. Putin's, a, you know, uh, uh, just, you know, Hitler-esque if, if sometimes. But I'm trying to figure out, is there any, my, my main point here is, is there any reporting on like what's folks in Russia are saying about Putin or is, or is all reporting like being squashed there? And, you know, like where, what's the side, what's the, where, what's the information coming out of, out of those places on their, like their thoughts on the war? Uh, it's, it's a good question. Uh, Russia media is very state controlled when it comes to television. So television is pretty much all state TV as far as mm-hmm. I understand and then you have, you know, a, Brit, a bit more dissent allowed when it comes to print. But even there, since the invasion began, there's been crackdowns. So some outlets have been forced to basically uh, shut down or censor themselves because of bans on critical reporting about the war, as far as, as, far as I understand. Um, but uh, look, in terms of public opinion, it's consistently for a long time been pretty favorable to Putin. He's popular inside Russia. And I mean, there are people who've come out against the war and you've seen uh, mass arrests and you've seen, you know, there were war resistors, people fled the country, but there's also a large spectrum of people who think that the war should have been fought a long time ago, that Putin should have invaded actually mm-hmm. back in 2014 after the U S backed coup. So if I were to guess, and again, I'm not an expert on Russia internally. I've never been to Russia and I don't follow its internal politics very closely. If I were to guess, I do think that you still have majority support for the war. And even some people who have been frustrated that, that Russia hasn't been aggressive enough, which mm. sounds strange, but I, that is a that is a spectrum of opinion inside of Russia. Hmm. And and then it, I, I know there's other people in the queue, so I don't want to take up too much time. Uh, just 
thinking about off ramps now because I've been following y'all for you know months now, um, talking about the different opportunities for off ramps. But now you know there is some diploma- diplomacy happening. What we've heard uh, in your latest reporting, Aaron. But um, what is the off ramp now? Is it's obviously not getting Crimea back, but like what would the U.S. accept or like what should they accept? Or you know you you're you probably you're an expert on this stuff. Like what is a reasonable request? to get out of this? I've always thought that there should be um, internationally supervised referendums in Mm. Crimea and Mm -hmm. in the Donbass on what they want to do. In Crimea, I have no doubt that the majority of the people want to be a part of Russia. In Donbass, I don't know. I suspect it's more split. So the only way to make it credible is to have internationally supervised vote and let them decide and, you know, bind both countries, Russia and Ukraine, to respect the... um, to respect the outcome. And then, but then you have not just the Donbass. Now you also have these, that these four areas that Russia has recently annexed. And, um, you know, after declaring them to be a part of Russia, is Russia prepared to, you know, give up its claim to them? Well, they just pulled out of Kherson, which they claim was part of Russia. Hmm. So that says to me that, you know, maybe Russia will be willing to do that. I don't know. It's worth trying. Because uh, to me, it's better than than fighting on with this with this war and, and yeah. having more people die. But yeah. um, that to me is the basic solution. And again, the point I've been trying to make home is that it didn't have to be this way. Russia did respect the Minsk Accords, which would have kept the Donbass a part of Ukraine. Just yep. in exchange, Ukraine would have to grant them some limited autonomy and recognize the equality of uh, ethnic Russians inside of Ukraine. And, you know, I think Zelensky, I think Zelensky was prepared to do that. Yeah, I do. He ran on making peace. He took some steps initially when he first won and when he first came in office to to implement Minsk. But the far right inside Ukraine blocked him and Zelensky had no support from the U.S. And so he ultimately, I think, caved to the far right. And that is what I think helped pave the way for this invasion, because there was just a refusal to accept the equality of uh, ethnic Russians inside Ukraine. And finally, Putin felt compelled to act and saw no other alternative. Uh, and um, again, I don't support what he did, but I do think that he was put in that predicament and it could have been avoided if Ukraine had just been willing to implement the Minsk Accords. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I don't, I don't want to take too much more time. And actually final thing, Aaron, uh, when is AM live uh, recording live? So I could call, so we can call in there and just follow you there. Say it again. When is AM live uh, going? Oh, that's know, goes, a, like, is, yeah. Every Sunday? That's on Sundays, yeah. That's on Sunday. At what time? What what time? Uh, whenever I decide that day that I can oh. do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I just have to get a notification. All right. Well, yes. thank you all so much for all you do. Thank I you. I love listening to you all. Thank Bye. you. Take I like care. the way you play hard to get, Aaron. Whenever you decide. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, I can't commit to one time. I just can't do it. Yeah, you got to keep people on their toes. Exactly. All right, Hussein. What's up, Aaron? How's it going? I'm pretty okay. You like quizzes? Not really, no. But oh. but but go ahead. You might like this one. Hey, okay. do you think Egypt is in Africom? Do I think Egypt? Yeah, I do think Egypt is in Africom. Egypt is in Africom. Uh, if you were to ask uh, without looking, yes, I do think <laughs> Egypt is in Africom. Is it or no? You're not. You failed again. This is like I thought you'd look it up. Anyways, I. I have, um, I got something to say. I have an issue with one of my friends here. He's Michael. Please help me with this. So he does press like you all. I think he does media stuff. I don't. Back in the days, like a few years ago, we got into an altercation at the playground. I hit him on the nose with a soccer ball and it accidentally got to bleeding. 
and now he wouldn't talk to me but i had a bunch of questions about like media and all that cool crap do you think i should like write a letter because every time i see him on campus i feel like there's this weird tension between him and i i don't want things to get <laughs> did like, you apologize <laughs> I said my bad. I, I, I like my bad. Uh, I purposely, he honestly thinks I purposely hit him on the nose with the soccer ball. I'm like, Michael, you made a great save. You dived that way. It was a wonderful save. It just happened to hit your face. I mean, sounds like you're victim blaming. I think you need uh, how, to apologize. <laughs> I, I said my bad. And he's still like, no. I my bad is not an apology. Purpose. Listen, Hussein. That's what I'm asking. I'm, what's an apology? I, I'm supposed to write a letter? No, you can just say to him that you really feel bad about it. My bad is a little too casual, in my opinion. For no, for I no think Michael's causing. overreacting over an over simple pickup soccer and and him not being able to save. I guess he did save it, but not him having a little scuffle over his nose or a little scratch. Yeah, see, if I'm him as an outsider, I'm just telling you, Hussein. It sounds like you don't want to listen to what I'm saying, but you did call in with advice, ask seeking advice. So I'm saying you got to apologize from the heart. So my, my bad was not good enough. I'm supposed to write a letter and be like, my bad. I didn't say write a letter. I said apologize. Me. But I did. Did I not? Aaron, what say ye? Is that yeah, I mean, look, sometimes my... Aaron, like, it was totally not... It was kind of accidental. Yeah. Like, he dived the right, the right way and saved it with his face. I mean, look, when you... Hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're playing sports, <laughs> especially my bad is pretty standard. Right. But right? Uh, yeah. And the question is, is he being too sensitive in taking a sports injury outside of the, the field? You know, I, I think it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Um, look in your heart, Hussein, and, and see if, you know, maybe there's something you did that you're not owning up to. And it could just be whole... his problem, you know. On an encouraging problem. note, I'd like to share that my father's best friend he made despite having thrown a basketball at his head. It did cost him some friendship for a while, but then they were friends. He th he threw a, a basketball at your fa at your father's head. No, my father threw a basketball on his head. He thought it would be funny, and then well, my dad oh, oh, it for a bit. Yeah. In but then they turned into good friends. Well, there we go. There okay, we go. but yeah. Well, by the way, Aaron, um, is not an Afrikaner. I just want you to know that as a press, it's not. I, okay, I was, thanks for letting me know. like quizzes. Okay, thanks, guys. I, I appreciate it. I just assumed they were lunch. because Egypt is in Africa. All right. Thank you. <laughs> They're those. in central command. All right. right. Okay. Take care. All right. You know, interesting uh, trying to stump stump Katie and Aaron. Uh, yeah. That was okay. Hey, uh, we welcome it all. All right. Iggy, go ahead. Uh, dear Auntie Katie and Uncle Aaron, I was on the toilet and some water, toilet water, splashed up back at me. Do you think I should go to the doctor or uh, will I be okay if I just have a bath? Um, yeah. Unless... Sorry, we're not going to do it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I was just taking the mickey. I was just taking the mickey. Yes. Yeah, um, sorry, the one thing I wanted to flag, I'm just curious. I'm, this is probably going to be out of your wheelhouse at the moment, but... Um, but it's possibly worth you guys watching. Are you familiar with much of the FTX um, exchange collapse at all? What I know, so what I know is they basically used customers' money to make really risky bets by one of their own affiliated companies, right? Is that pretty much what happened? Yeah, so the Sam Bankman-Fried um, has basically backdoored his own crypto exchange, embezzled a load of cash out of it, and it and it now and it now essentially can't meet all of the um, 
the liabilities it's got. But oh. the reason why I'd flag it is because apparently there's a pathway into it that uh, uh, through through this that is a big political clinic. The big it's, it's not secret, but it's probably not that well um, publicly known that um, Bankman Freed is essentially a massive DNC party uh, contributor. But also the platform was being used transactionally to shift money over to Ukraine and then kick back into the DNC. And that money laundering pathway might be worth you guys having a look at, keeping an eye on because it connects into the Ukrainian yes. war, how it well, gets funded is, that, and then basically that, liability. That's quite the allegation. And I've heard rumors of that. Uh, and I do know people who are looking into that. And I look forward to seeing what they come up with, because that's pretty explosive if it's true. And, you know, um, we'll have to see. So thank you, Iggy, for the call. No problem. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. Uh, Brent. Okay. So really quick. Um, it was at UCLA. Um, yeah, they had uh, to uh, get out the vote for Karen Bass. And um, while listening to you guys really quick, I just wanted to ask one more thing. Um, Aaron, you keep saying, um, what was Russia supposed to do? Um, there are many people who are um, going to say not invade. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not invade. So, um, if they didn't invade, uh, would Russia still function as a sovereign country, like as a functioning uh, country? Um, that's basically what people would say. So, yeah. So, look, <laughs> it's a counterfactual, right? We'll never know. But the argument for invading is this: is that you know, so uh, Zelensky refused to speak to the rebels in the la in in February. Um, so basically. That was him saying, we're not going to implement the Minsk Accords. At the last round of meetings on the Minsk Accords, Zelensky refused to even speak to the rebels. Okay, so that's a pretty good sign we're not going to make peace. Then Ukraine did increase its shelling of the Donbass. And the days before Russia invaded, massive escalation of shelling by Ukraine. And that to some people is a sign that Ukraine was pre preparing to invade because that's what you do apparently before you invade is you massively uh, increase your artillery fire to prepare the ground for going in. And then you had Zelensky talking about acquiring nuclear weapons and you had the U S basically rejecting all of Russia's core demands. When Russia put up draft treaties to uh, the U S NATO in December. So you have possible sign of a Ukraine uh, offensive into the Donbass, and you have the U S rejecting um, U S uh, uh, you have the U S NATO rejecting Russian demands and you have an increase in shelling by Ukraine. So that is a sign to defenders of Russia's invasion, that Russia had no choice. And uh, look, we'll never know. I just can't buy that, that they had no other choice. Why not go to the UN Security Council and try to get peacekeepers for the Donbass? Um, to me, there's just always something more you can do because the use of force, even if you have legit grievances, to me is you have to meet a really high burden of proof to, 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 to justify it because you're sending off people to kill and to be killed. And I just can't accept that Russia had no alternative, but I'm open to the argument. It's a tough one, uh, but I just can't. It, accept, is. Yeah. it is. And people like Timothy, um, while he, he trying to downplay the corruption and the, the, the politics of it, I thought that was wrong. But I, I think there's I get some of his frustration that what you're saying is used to justify the war. But um, there's people that will argue that I will argue that um, you, you can't control how people use your facts to push their own agenda. You can only report on the facts. So yeah, I just yeah, want to and I'm, I'm just trying to explain why I think the war happened. Right, of course. I mean, you can, you can, you can believe if you want that Putin is an imperialist who wants to conquer all of Ukraine, or you can look at the facts and you can look at the fact that there's been a war going on in Ukraine for eight years, which killed 14,000 people. And that uh, the far right 
and you wanted to continue, even though there was a peace accord on the books to end it. And the U.S., I think, basically sided with the far right over Zelensky's own peace mandate, uh, which, he, which he won on. So those, to me, are important facts to point out. And so what people are referring to is yesterday on my Collins show, there was a caller who, was, who took issue with a lot of what I said, and we had a very long exchange, and you can listen to it. Uh, it's it's published now, and uh, I thought he was right. Really he, he nitpicked like you didn't know the names and stuff. It's kind of like he was trying to you you what you're what you're reporting on is used as quote unquote propaganda to justify the war. So I I believe he was trying to downplay the what you were reporting on, and it just yeah. I that's not. He, I thought it was really downplaying the role of the far right inside Ukraine right. in sabotaging peace. That was my basic point. And, and he, he disagrees. So people can, can listen to it. Just <laughs> right, just. All right, Brent, thanks very much. Right, thank for you. Back in. Okay, Ian. Hello, guys. I'm calling in from Brazil. Hi, welcome. Hi. Thanks. So I just like to say that about your coverage of Brazil. It was really great. But it's important to say that Bolsonaro is not a disease, but a symptom. Mm. And the thing is, there are a small group of generals behind him pulling the strings of all his campaign and his administration. And the point of these generals is to remain in the background, you know, and put Bolsonaro in the front like he's this evil genius, but someone is behind doing stuff. And these generals are going to still pose a threat to Lula's policies. You know, they have ties with U.S. and they have ties with local judiciary. So Lula is going to have a, a, a difficult job to implement popular policies. So I would like to, to ask you about, you know, this FCPA and these things that the DOJ and State Department implement to control elites, you know, all around the world and stop real leaders to pulling, pulling developing countries up, you know? So, sorry, is this a re reference to when I did a show on this? Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. Because I was like, did I forget that we didn't usually? Yeah. So, uh, sorry, what's your question? Well, my question is the U.S. role on, on actually, you know, they let Lula win this election, but they are still going to impose threats, you know, and make his job difficult to implement some real change policies, you know, especially in economics. And they use, you know, these fake corruption charges to, to boost, you know, the wrong candidates. Right. So you're saying we have to be vigilant about that? Yeah. And you have to be vigilant about, you know, the, the people behind Bolsonaro, you know. Those generals behind him were, were a big part in Haiti's intervention, you know. They, they, have huge, uh, straight, they have huge ties with South Command, you know. Mm -hmm. And the, that mission in Haiti was kind of a big deal because they managed to, to, you know, to get in social circles with U.S. military and they are running everything in Brazil. Right. As I understand um, the Haiti intervention, so that happened actually under Lula. 
And Lula did that because the U.S. needed somebody to intervene in Haiti to, to do its bidding. And Lula put up Brazil, volunteered Brazil for that. I think Lula did that because he wanted to basically get the U.S. off of his back. That was not long after uh, Hugo Chavez was overthrown the first time in Venezuela. That was in like, so that the Venezuela coup was in 2002. And MINUSTA, which is the international force in Haiti, that was, I think, 2005 or 2006, a year after a U.S.-backed coup in Haiti. And so Lula was trying to play ball with the U.S. so he wouldn't get overthrown. So he put up Brazilian forces to go into Haiti, and they played a very destructive role. I mean, the U.N. force brought cholera to Haiti, and they raided you know, poor um, neighborhoods that were revolting against the U.S.-backed coup government. So... I know many Haitians who are very upset with Lula for that. Um, but I, you know, I understand, you know, when you're in a situation like he's in, I understand why it's tempting to want to try to play ball. But um, you speak to Haitians, at least, and I don't think they're very appreciative of that. And now, I mean, look, if you look at Lavo Jato, the, uh, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, the operate car wash that got Lula in prison. I mean, there are people who say the U.S. had a very big role in that behind the scenes. And I haven't looked into that, but I wouldn't be surprised if basically this was done in, in concert uh, with them, uh, the, this plot to frame and imprison Lula. And yeah, now it's true that they, uh, it looks like they actually supported his victory, but I think they're hoping he's just going to uh, play ball and that he won't, you know, um, be too insubordinate. Yeah. 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 And I, I hope he proves them wrong, but if you look, I mean, I mean, you tell me, uh, Ian, like, um, Hasn't Lula sort of appointed a really kind of centrist or right-wing vice president in a bid to placate the Brazilian elite? Yeah, he did, man. That's that's really bad. His vice president is not a good guy. He, yeah, he's, Lula, he's, yeah, he's giving mixed yeah, signals, you yeah. know? I mean, look, I, I feel for him because the lesson is if you're too independent – the U.S. Right. will overthrow you or they'll destabilize you. I mean, everyone in, in Latin America has learned that. You can go down the whole list. And so I understand why he feels the need to hedge and protect himself, but it, it means you have to make compromises that are very difficult and, and a betrayal to your own base. So it's it's tough. I, I really feel for the position he's in. Yeah, man, thanks. Where? What part of Brazil are you in, by the way? I live in Sao Paulo. Oh, cool. Right. Yeah, I actually live in São Bernardo, you know, Lula's home city. It's like uh, suburban São Paulo, you know. And and what is the? I mean, what is the overall mood right now? I mean, are, are people still excited that you know that Bolsonaro lost and and that and that Lula's coming back in? Well, the country is really divided. You know, some people yeah. are really happy, but yeah. there is like this kind of election deniers also. You know, people that don't believe. Don't believe the results, which are a bit, you know, questionable because the Brazilian voting machines are are vulnerable. You know, if you if you listen to real tech guys, you know, but mm -hmm. of course, Bolsonaro only plays that card to to mess mess debate. You know, he's not he's not in that for you know getting clean elections. Of course, right. Mm. Mm. All right, Ian, thanks so much for the call and, and keep us posted. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay. Andrew. Hello, Katie and Aaron. Uh, Hello. I'll be brief. Following the Kerrison uh, surrender, whatever you want to call it, retreat, uh, 
Um, that was the first time I've heard Russian supporters really seriously start criticizing Putin and asking if he was a wartime president or not. Hmm. And this got me thinking just about uh, the kind of uh, the saying, be careful what you wish for. And this idea that further Ukrainian real successes, like if they were to make an offensive that took back Melitopol or Zaporozhia, something significant like that, um, there's a real possibility that either Russia would have to really crank up its abuses or maybe face some kind of regime change. I actually do think that might be possible that, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be catastrophic or anything, but if this is the first time I've really heard harsh criticism of Putin. So I was just wondering what you both thought of that. And uh, if you think that this is still the objective of the U.S. or if the U.S. has considered that, Maybe it's not in our best interest to have Putin collapse and just hope that he's replaced with someone better. One second. I'm just trying. Aaron left by accident. I'm trying to let him yeah, in. Yeah, I see that. Okay. One second. Sorry. I... No problem. Oh, here he is. Okay. Let me invite to speak. Uh, all right. I, cool. Should I really uh, quickly reiterate that, Aaron, or... Were you able to hear what I was asking? Yeah, look, I've heard about that, too, that uh, uh, there are people inside the Russian political spectrum who are very upset because they feel, as I said before, that Putin hasn't been aggressive enough. And, and them pulling out of Kherson is, uh, is an example of that. And because they see, you know, there are people in Russia who see all these territories in Ukraine as historically a part of Russia. And so it's a huge betrayal to the country to withdraw from them, especially after you've just claimed them as your own and um i don't think they're influential enough to really do it to really unseat putin um but i don't know i mean there are people who say that you know if putin keeps keeps losing like this then then he won't survive uh it's a good question i don't know russia well enough to say uh but um i uh i do think that any alternative to him would be far more hawkish than he is i, I do agree with that for sure but i, I just don't see, go ahead sorry I thought he was Hitler, so how can you get more hawkish than Hitler? Well, we, we never got to regime change Hitler, so I guess we never found out if he would True. be replaced by a peacenik like uh, Jimmy Carter if right. we just had blown him up, you know. But, <clears throat> yeah, it's just an interesting scenario to imagine that some kind of peacenik would somehow flower if, if – like what, what possible mechanism would it be? I yeah, I mean, it's so it's so stupid. People, uh, the, the, and, and, but of course, that's always there's never any rational thought to these regime change fantasies. Uh, no. Same with same with Syria. Like no one could ever answer the question. All right, so let's see. So overthrow Assad. Then who comes right. in? You know, yeah. it's always myopic. Yeah. It's always very myopic. Yeah. And if you ask that question, they say I'll answer if you condemn Ronnie Kalik. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's, really uh, that's not a worthy trade. Okay. Yeah. All thanks. right. Thanks. Thanks for your answers. Okay, Jonathan. Uh, firstly, I wanted to say thanks for the uh, Norm Finkelstein interview. Uh, that was a legit treat on my work day. Thanks. I out of that. And uh, the other was, uh, you know, I noticed that you guys were were picking up on the the same things I did watching these things, which is, you know, there's an incredible amount of self-congratulation and backslapping 
for an election that was basically a contest as to which party was going to shit the bed worse before election day. And they seem to be doubling down on all of their bad policies and bad takes. And I'm no longer entirely sure whether the outcome we got was better than the projected red wave in terms of future policy. And I don't even anymore. I'm wondering if you guys have any insights. Why, can I ask why you think that? Like what, what you think the long political impact is? What I mean, they, be better? they seem, yeah, I mean, they seem to, they seem to be doubling down on uh, all of their bad policy initiatives, including you touched on, you know, the fact that all of the things that Joe Biden was bragging about were the equivalent of homeopathic medicine, you know, uh, one part, uh, you know, whatever the ingredient was supposed to be to 1000 parts water and means tested to death. It's, it's basically nothing. And, uh, meanwhile, like they're, they're doubling down on the aggressive foreign policy and they're now convinced that all that stuff they did was good and right. And they should keep doing it. Right. And, um, and meanwhile, a lot of these, uh, centrist Dems that we thought were going to get kicked to the curb got reelected. And so essentially the message that the democratic party is going to get is they shouldn't change anything. Yeah. I totally hear what you're saying. My only reservation with that analysis though, is that it assumes that had they done badly, they would reconsider and tack left. And I just don't think we have any evidence for that really. Yeah, you're right. It's a tough one because they deserve to lose. Um, I think because I think they've been so feckless and so horrible, especially on foreign policy. But the problem is the alternative is just so terrible. I mean, Republicans, there's like, I don't see anything positive that they do. And there was talk that they were going to, for example, cut off military spending on Ukraine. But I don't think they would actually do that. I think there would be a small minority that would support that, but not the majority of the of the Republicans. And at least with Democrats, you sometimes will get something positive. And, you know, John Fetterman winning over Dr. Oz, like, how can I? Uh, not be happy about that. I mean, Fetterman, you know, for all the disagreements I have with them, at least has some solid progressive policies, you know, so it's, um, but look, it, I agree with your sentiment. They deserve to lose because, yeah. you know, for example, the war in Ukraine, I do think they could have avoided that and they fueled it instead. And and that to me is alone is worth losing over. But again, it's just this sad thing in U.S. politics where there's no alternative. Well, anyway, that's all I had. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Okay, Steve. Hi. Hello. Hi. Um, I want to push back against the pushback about, uh, oh, he could have just not invaded. Um, If you're sitting in the Kremlin and you're in charge of Russia not being invaded by NATO and the U.S., and you see everything that's happened the last 30 years, and then you, you see the uh, ABM treaty was nullified by the United States, and then the uh, Intermediate Forces Nuclear Treaty was nullified by the United States, and you're in charge of Russian security, you say to yourself, my God, they're going to put nuclear missiles right up on our border and just say, hey, it's a done deal. So Putin actually, yes, sorry, had to invade. 
And the other factor, of course, in Putin's brain was, as was just said by a caller who made a really good analysis, he would have been cooed from the right if he didn't invade. Because everybody in the leadership of Russia understands the game, that the the West has been seeking a, a, a pliant Russia since the Soviet Union collapsed. So you can't be a leader of a country and just watch your enemies, like, casually stroll up to your front door. No one would do that, and the United States certainly would not do that. And then my, my last point, and I'll quit, is Max Blumenthal, uh, n well known to everyone here. He, uh, he's got a, 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 a segment with uh, talking about the war crimes that the Ukrainians are committing. The propaganda has been so bad, Bucha and all these other war crimes that were actually committed by the Ukrainians, the Western media still to this day is pretending every war crime has been committed by Russia. There was a man in Kiev who was hammered to death. He was picked up in Kiev on November 11th and hammered to death by the uh, Ukrainian uh, you know, SBU. And then the Western media reports it as it was done by the Wagner Group. Well, the last time I checked, the Wagner Group isn't in Kiev. So um, the, we have to start talking about what is really going on and who who is committing war crimes. And I guess you could say, well, they're both committing war crimes. You could say that, but then don't lie and say all the war crimes are being committed by one side. Okay, so yeah, thanks. And listen, I, I really hear you. I do think Russia was in a very, very tough position uh, with this war. And um, I personally just can't accept that they had no choice but to invade without exhausting all options first. Because, again, to launch an invasion of a country and kill a lot of people and cause a lot of refugees and send your own people to die, that's just a huge uh, action that requires a very high burden of evidence. And I, I know the case that they have, and it's it's strong. There's a lot of things that they, that, that there's a lot of threats that they faced and they were in a very tough position. I just, it, it's, I can't endorse it just um, without, for example, you know, can they prove conclusively that Ukraine was about to invade the Donbass? There's a circumstantial case. There was a huge increase in shelling, but were they going to do it? And what if they had, for example, tried to, um, Rely, you know, rely more on Germany and France to hold the card on Ukraine joining NATO. I mean, there's all these counterfactuals, but look, I think there's like you make a very, very strong case, and I don't just dismiss it. I, I'm open to it. I just, um, again, an invasion is such a huge thing that uh, to me it, it it requires some very careful thinking. But I, I appreciate the context that that you're providing. So thank you. You okay. know, guys. No, just thinking someone, a lot of people say like they could have done something else. They could have more, but don't have, don't really have examples of what they could have done. Vijay Prashad, I know on my show has said that they could have brought their case to the UN. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. They, and they, and they talked about doing that a few years ago. Uh, they talked about a peacekeeping force uh, for the Donbass a few years ago, because, you know, uh, uh, people in the, and the Donbass were getting shelled with U.S. weapons and being killed in large numbers. And so there was talk of that. I don't know what happened to it. It would have been vetoed by the U.S., but why not try that again? Right. And, 
if yeah. the US if the US vetoes it this time, that at least gives you, you know, a bit more okay. moral standing to intervene. Right. Um now the counter argument is that if they had done that, that would have shown their cards and then, you know, Ukraine would have uh been able to uh undermine any Ukraine uh, any Russian offensive. But I don't know. I just again, these are all counterfactuals, but I think that to me is what they should have done. Uh, yeah. that's that's my stance until I can be convinced of otherwise. All right. But, you know, look, it doesn't matter anymore. It's like, you know, the point is this war has been going on for a long time and there are, there are solutions on the table to end it. And whether Russia was right or wrong in invading, um, there are ways to end the invasion now. And they, they should at least be tried rather right. than more yeah, war. Priority, not not like relitigating whose fault it is. Yeah. OK, Joe. Hey, uh, great to call in. I just have a couple of quick lighter note things, I suppose, that are tangentially related. Even lighter than nuclear war? <laughs> yes, I, I, can, I can manage that. Yeah. So, no spoilers, but in the latest Black Panther movie, uh, Haiti is an important plot point. Hmm. Now is a perfect time to, like, send kids home as sleeper agents and being like, Mommy, Daddy, what's happening in Haiti? Is this person safe? You know, stuff like that. Um, like a little prion disease. Go home and infect the host. Um, and then the other neat thing is, and I'm, I'm sorry if I just come across as shilling right now. I'm excited that I've found these things. Um, Run the Jewels just released a remix album, mm. RTJ Quattro. And they got a bunch of people from um, Central and South America to remix the whole album. It's incredible. I'm finding a lot of new voices that I wouldn't have found otherwise. So, yeah, check that out. Um, and I think the one other serious thing is I started listening to the Monday morning show, and I got to the point where you were talking about Elizabeth Warren, who is my senator. All right. Um, uh, well, I actually had a couple of run-ins with Jim McGovern in the lead-up to the midterms, um, who's also my representative, um, and I had the opportunity to press him on the war, his funding, and it it kind of goes without like much mentioning, but he was one of the first delegations to head over there to Ukraine huh. and be like, we're pledging support. Um, I, it's frustrating, especially from him, considering that he did manage to get Iraq right. Mostly right. from what I call. He also got Stephen Donziger right. And for him to be so wrong on this is disappointing and I had the chance to bring that up to him um, I didn't I, I had two opportunities to do so the first time I did not do it eloquently or terribly politely uh, and his answer was you know go ask Putin for it when I was you know comparing the you know billions sent for war and bombs but nothing for water for places like Jackson and right. Flint that's a good um, response to ask Putin for it, but yeah. And then uh, his parting words to me were, "Vote for the Republican." After I that sounds like Biden. Sounds like he's taking notes from Biden. Yeah. Um. 
yeah, I, I just think uh, Jim McGovern needs a lot more scrutiny, especially considering his sudden pro-war turn. I wonder if he's uh, suddenly got some new contracts or donors, whatever. Yeah, that's it for me. I just, I think it takes so much, like, bravery and also... Uh, I mean, I don't even think it's about new contracts. I just think that there's such scary groupthink right now going on about this war. And as Aaron's pointed out a bunch, you know, I think Russiagate didn't help. I think Russiagate kind of broke people's brains. I think Russiagate and Trump's election kind of broke people's brains um, so that they are kind of irrational when it comes to this. I mean, I'm sure the contracts don't harm and and what is it like you get paid to get it wrong at some point but yeah I don't think that McGovern I just think like no one's good on this issue sadly he said about Trump that all roads lead to Putin and uh, my mantra is all roads lead to Russiagate Uh, I blame everything on Russiagate Russiagate was so stupid and so destructive and we're we are seeing the consequences still today I totally agree that it made um, diplomacy impossible. It further solidified support for the neocon consensus and um, made this war a lot easier because, you know, instead of challenging Trump on like his tax cuts and all his other terrible policies, the way to challenge him was by accusing him of being soft on Putin. And the way to respond to that was being tough on Putin, quote unquote. And so, yes, um, catch that in my book coming out next year, which I'm still working on. Mm-hmm. Right now. Yeah. All right. Uh, Another place that we see this is with Assange, I think, like just broken brain syndrome. Oh, my God. Yes. I went to a good documentary last night called Ithaca, which is about Assange's father and his partner, Stella Morris, his wife, Stella Morris. And, um, you know, it's just one of the most fascinating parts was when you see Rachel Maddow when Trump is president and you see Chris Hayes when Trump is president condemning um, Trump's treatment of Assange. And, you know, they mentioned the free press and the First Amendment. And all these same people are just totally silent when Biden does it. Yeah, that was, I mean, by the way, and that's another example of how, I mean, A, Russiagate um, encourages the criminalization of, of dissent and, yeah. and the veneration of the national security state by, you know, um, basically making people like Julian Assange a number one enemy. I mean, like, and, and, and like, it was interesting when Trump, when, when his justice department indicted Assange, that was awkward for Russia Gators because they were simultaneously claiming that Julian Assange and Trump colluded. Right. And so here Trump is now um, indicting him. And so they had to pre- pretend for a couple of days that they don't, that they're against that. But then they went back to speculating that Assange was a, was a Russian agent uh, who colluded <laughs> with Trump. And, um, you know, that's why things like that just didn't get very much attention. I mean, there are bigger rallies to save Jeff Sessions' job by liberals than there were to challenge Trump indicting Julian Assange because right. that that's just the direction that liberals went in under Russiagate. And people anyway. should that Dan, venerated liberal hero, as he should be, Daniel Ellsberg, is a supporter of Assange, thinks Assange should be speaking. Of course, of course, yeah. of course. Um, all right, uh, Brady, go ahead. What's up? You guys hip to the FDX connection to Ukraine yet? Uh, Somebody mentioned that earlier on the call today, and we're going to look into it. 
Oh, I missed you. What is this? Um, so yeah, it's pretty freaking wild. So FTX, the cryptocurrency that just crashed. Oh. Um, they uh, tens of billions of dollars, right? To the war, and then using FTX, this is the crypto that like Matt Damon like endorsed for bull, like a be bold thing, like um. Like be awesome, like don't question things, just like do stuff. Um, they had this whole advertising campaign for it. So a lot of microcrats, the EO was actually second uh, you're breaking up. Can you get a better money connection? I can't hear you well. Sorry, Brady, we had to remove you because your connection. But basically, what Brady was saying is that there are these allegations that you that you that FTX, this crypto company, was laundering money via Ukraine. And I don't know about that allegation. I've heard it said, and we'll have to look in. We'll have to look more into it. And um, I, I know some journalists who are looking into it. So hopefully, we'll find out more about that very soon. Okay, uh, Scooby. I'm just a little confused on the midterm elections and what the results really mean for the leftist groups. Um, I know that it's a historic loss for Republicans, but does it really mean that we have control of everything and we can pass all the things we've wanted to pass now? Or what do you guys think it truly will lead? Not much, honestly, because we still have Manchin. Uh, and if we didn't have Mansion, we'd probably have another rotating villain, and we still have cinema. So I don't foresee that much change. I think the most charitable argument you can make is that it's a harm reduction thing. But I don't see a lot of change for where from where we are now. All right. So it's not something to celebrate, in other words. I mean, you can celebrate it as a bullet dodge, but I think that's probably the most. And I know that there are people who disagree with me and criticize me for even saying that. Because it's I mean, it's tough. It's really awful. tough. It's really tough because, again, as we said before, Democrats deserve to lose. But yet, when they lose, the winner is is the Republicans who have, who have nothing to offer that's positive. I mean, they're just completely subservient to corporations, the military-industrial complex. And they're meaner to marginalized people than Democrats are. Um, so it's, you know, it's like, even though Democrats deserve to lose, I just can't cheer for a Republican victory. And it's, as Katie said before, it just means the Democrats are not going to learn really any lessons. And uh, it's probably just going to be status quo. So, I, you know, it's like, to me, it's not something to cheer or not cheer. It's just reality. And, um, you know, if Republicans had any kind of message that was like challenging Democrats on all how, on all their you know terrible policies, then then I would cheer it. But they don't. I mean, like, what do Republicans stand for? They're just anti woke, and they, uh, and uh, they, uh, yeah. I mean, like, that's pretty much all they are. Like, they had no actual policy, so it's just. Um, I think, um, depending on your vantage point, you can see positives in the fact that Republicans didn't take over because they probably would have pushed through some stuff that would be very harmful. At the the same time, too, it's also harmful that Democrats get away with being so terrible. So there's good and bad overall. And I would be more more hopeful about a Republican wave, or I should say a Democratic loss, if I thought that Democrats would do anything from that. 
Like when Hillary lost, though, they didn't learn anything from that. They didn't get more leftist. They didn't like embrace Bernie Sanders, et cetera. So that's no, why I yeah. kind of feel like that argument of it getting better after it gets worse. Well, that's a related argument. It's not the same, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, 2016 should have really permanently ended the neoliberals because right. Hillary lost to a guy pretending to be a working class champion. And Democrats actually had a working class champion in Bernie Sanders. And instead of pivoting to him and his wing of the party and letting that be a genuine alternative to this con man Trump, Democrats embraced a con of their own, which is that the problem is that Trump is a Russian agent. And yeah. Bernie, I think, and I'll never forgive him for this, went along with all that instead yeah. of trying to reclaim the party. Um, and uh, I think that was just a tragedy. Anyway. Uh, all right. Thank you for the call. Nazar. And then we're going to wrap it up pretty soon. So, Nazar, go ahead. Hey, um, I actually don't have anything to say. Long time listener, like years long listener. And uh, I just want to say I love you guys both. And I'll jump off if somebody else wants to jump in. I just didn't come up with anything. So well, That's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, Nazar. you came up with that. that. That's yeah. a good thing to come up with. Yes. Okay, Andrew. Hey, Katie. Hey, Aaron. Hi. Hey. Good morning. Um yeah, I guess my my thoughts are mostly about the midterms. I think that there will there there will really need to be some kind of a Democratic Party collapse. Um, I think for a, or a Republican Party collapse, and I think they could happen in succession because people kind of, especially independent voters, tend to kind of oscillate between the two. Um, but I think we should just pull our our thoughts out of the time frame of the election cycles and just dedicate several years to building a solid third party. Um, I think that, you know, in, in Mexico, it took six years from, you know, what, what is really the closest analogy to Bernie Sanders getting screwed over again in the 2020 campaign. Um, imagine six years after that, there was a new third party that won the majority of Congress and the presidency. That's basically what happened in Mexico. They have a very similar bicameral house to us and they have um, every bit as much corruption in the electoral system. So I think it's certainly not there. There is no direct analogy. There is no exact um, similar situation, but it's close enough. I think it, it merits more exploration and yeah, also um, I, I feel like it would probably take longer in the United States for a, a number of different reasons. So say eight to 10 years, I mean, there's a lot of damage that could be done in eight to 10 years, but as we see with um, warfare, ice border wall, all of that is just as bad as under Trump, if not worse. Honestly, the immigration system is worse under Biden than it was under Trump. So I think it is worthwhile to um, to explore that that scenario where we say, yeah, the Republicans are awful. They're doing their own censorship thing. You know, you look at Ron DeSantis, example of that. Um, but. I, you know, I think either way, we'll have to weather a lot of economic and social um, immiseration, regardless which color party is in office. And we should just embark on this project. 
Well, uh, listen, I, I agree with you. Uh, as long as there's no challenge to, to the Democrats from the left, they always attack the left and, uh, and undermine it. And we learned that, you know, very clearly with Bernie in 2016 when they sabotaged him. And, and like, same with Labor Party, where, where, you know, there's all these revelations that continue to come out about how Jeremy Corbyn's really biggest enemy in Britain was not the right wing, you know, conservatives. It was his own party who undermined him viciously in such a deceptive way. So we need to build an alternative to the centrist parties so that uh, we're not propping them up. And so I, I totally agree with that. Right on. All right. Can I just say one last thing really yeah. quick? Um, the the party that AMLO was running in in 2006 and 2012 was called the, the PRD. I think it's the Revolutionary Democratic Party. Uh-huh. Um, they at the time were similar to the Democrats. They were sort of a center left party. Um, although I think they were actually slightly more left than the Democrats, but that's kind of besides the point. When uh, AMLO won the nomination for that party and ran, and the rigging in AMLO's case was at the actual national election, not in the primary, um, a big portion of the the membership of the party decided to leave along with AMLO. And the PRD still exists, but they have formed this kind of uh, rainbow coalition of neoliberalism with the PRI and PAN, who had been in in power for roughly a century. And I think we'll see the same. We're already seeing the same thing with the Republicans and Democrats. And I think that that will be um, rather than pushing the Democrats into a a slightly better solidified position on the center left, I think that those Democrats who are worth salvaging will probably leave or for, or perhaps just form a core of the DSA and that will become a a different party. And the majority of the Democrats and the Republicans will start to run. uh, They'll just put their logos next to each other and talk about saving democracy and domestic extremism and stuff like that. And uh, they have enough overlap already that we're seeing them endorse the good Republicans, quote unquote, the Liz Cheney's and whoever the fuck yeah. else. Yeah. So I, yeah. I would just say that maybe that's a scary thing, but also kind of a, a comical thing to look forward to if this project is successful. Um, but they, yeah, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Well, Andrew, thank you. And uh, the, uh, the example of what happened in Mexico and how AMLO was able to achieve success, I think is really interesting. And, I agree. Something we can learn from. All right. We're going to wrap it there. Usefulidiots.substack.com. And if you're in New York City, go and see the Katie Halper Show live Tuesday night at the People's Forum. Yes. Please do it. It's going to be my pinned tweet again. But yeah, the People's Forum at uh, 37th between 8th and 9th. And thanks, everyone, for your call. And see you next week.